1: Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and the following interview is being republished with permission from the excellent podcast Psychologists Off the Clock. That's Psychologists Off the Clock at offtheclockpsych.com. I hope you enjoy the interview
2: ever wonder what psychologists talk about over coffee? I'm Debbie Sorensen, a clinical psychologist in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, where I specialize in rehab and health psychology and acceptance and commitment therapy.
3: And I'm Diana Hill, a clinical psychologist in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California, where I specialize in mindfulness and values-based approaches to therapy. In this
2: podcast, we bring psychology research into practice by discussing topics from psychology with experts in the field and with each other. You'll get a glimpse into the books we read, the research we think is interesting, and the ideas from psychology that we use to thrive in our own lives.
3: Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Hey, Denny. Hi, Diana. Well, I know you've had a really busy last couple of weeks, so this episode today is probably going to be perfect for you because it's all about rest. And I was wondering, what do you do to rest?
2: Yeah, well, I, you know, the last couple, this is a really good example because the last couple of weeks have been really busy. I've traveled, I led a workshop, um... I was solo parenting for several days right before I left town. We got a dog in the middle of it. So it's been very busy. And so I had a perfect day today. It was kind of rainy and cold spring day here in Denver. And I, you know, pretty much stayed in my jammies all day, read books to my kids, made pancakes, you know, played with the puppy. It's just been one of those days where I just had a long to do list that I ignored and I just kinda hung around the house. That sounds so wonderful. Good timing in that sense. I got to the first time I've had a chance to rest in a while. Yeah. How about you? What do you do to rest?
3: All sorts of things. I, I really like to walk. So just going for a slow walk with my family. Sometimes after dinner we'll walk down to the mailbox and back and Having an evening walk is a really nice, restful time, and I also really enjoy reading to my kids. I find that extremely restful and peaceful, climbing into bed with them and reading um, Harry Potter, sort of our our big one, the series that we're on, or Winnie the Pooh, Pooh, my little one. So that's really restful too. And today we're having our uh, guest interviewer, Yael Shumbrun, to do an interview with the author of a book called, Rest, Why You Get More Done When You Work Less, by Alex Sujung King-Peng. And Yael is a frequent contributor to our podcast, and of all people that I know, it's really ironic that she chose the book, Rest, because she's a mother of three, she's a professor at Brown, she has a private practice, she's writing her own book, and it's kind of ironic that she chose this topic herself.
2: Yeah, maybe there's some desire to rest a little bit somewhere
3: in there, I'm guessing. (laughs) It sounds like she probably doesn't get much. Yeah, So I look forward to listening to her interview and uh, learning a little bit more about how we can rest more effectively.
2: That sounds good. And can you remind us about your workshop, Diana, that you have coming up in Santa Barbara?
3: Oh, thanks a lot. So it's in the end of... May uh, Memorial Day weekend on Sunday from one to four at Yoga Soup. And it's a workshop on acceptance and commitment training. So it's really for the general public as well as for practitioners. You'll be learning all about ACT, applying ACT to your own life and really using some of the skills on yourself. We'd be developing some more contact with the present moment, identifying what your values are, getting moving in the direction of your values. So you can learn more about it and sign up at yogasoup.com or through my website, which is drdianahill.com.
2: Great. Thank you, Diana. And we are looking forward to listening to this interview ahead with Yael on rest. Great.
0: Hi, this is Dr. Yael Schonbrunn in Boston, and I'm excited to talk today with author, founder of The Restful Company, and visiting scholar at Stanford, Dr. Alex Pang. We are going to be discussing Dr. Pang's wonderful book, rest, why you get more done when you work less. You can find rest in your bookstore, and I see that the paperback version will be out in June with a foreword by Ariana Huffington. So Alex, welcome. The title of your book caught my attention because I come across the issue of work burnout in my private practice all the time, and of course, confront it in my own busy life as well. Uh, And as I read the chapters, I found myself getting more and more excited about the concept of how rest and work are really important complements to one another. You write that rest is not work's adversary, rest is work's partner. They complement and complete each other. So I wonder if you could start us out by sharing how you started to explore this idea of deliberate rest and its relationship to work.
1: So, oh, um, first of all, thanks for having me on. But the, you know, the the origin story for the book was actually um, a sabbatical that I took a few years ago. Uh, I was, you know, I've lived in Silicon Valley for the last um, uh, or of uh, almost twenty years, and have worked mainly as a technology forecaster and futurist and consultant. And about, you know, sort of uh, in. My previous job, after about you know, sort of eight or nine years of you know, sort of juggling projects and doing a lot of travel and um, client engagements, you know, essentially I had sort of, uh, I had, I had uh, sort of kind of burned out and had an opportunity to um, take a step back and go to Microsoft Research. Cambridge um you know Microsoft has a bunch of research centers in different parts of the world and I sort of knew someone who was um who ran a research group there and presumably you know the four other people who they'd really wanted said no so you know I got lucky um but you know I I went over there to do the work that eventually became my second book a book about technology and distraction called the distraction addiction and a few weeks into it you know I real, I sort of realized that I was getting an incredible amount of stuff done. I was doing all this reading. I was getting into new literatures. So I was, you know, I felt like I was, you know, a lot of a lot of really interesting intellectual stuff was happening, and I was being, I was, you know, writing plenty, and so I was being really productive. But I also felt like I didn't have the sense of time pressure that was, you know, second nature to sort of life in Silicon Valley. It started me thinking that, you know, maybe our default assumptions about what you have to do in order to do really good work, you know, namely to put in Herculean hours, to you know, uh, to to be in this state of kind of continuous partial um, attention, as Linda Stone puts it, you know, to meet challenges by layering them on top of each other and doing more and more. Maybe that attitude actually was backwards, that maybe in order to do really good work, what you had to do was actually to follow a different strategy, a different path. And I started looking and I uh, looking at... Um, the lives of really creative people, right? Nobel Prize winners, um, or famous artists, um, some military leaders—you know, people who people of kind of unquestionable accomplishment. Um, and I realized when I started diving into their lives that a lot of these amazingly creative folks had uh, actually, um, you know, these periods where, when they were younger they worked immensely hard, right, they, you know, you stayed up until two or three writing your novel, um, and that worked for a little while, and then they, you know, and then almost to a person, they had some kind of crisis, some moment of burnout, and they came out the other side and discovered a different way of working, one that, uh, would one that was much more balanced, one that um, alternated periods of intensive focus with what I call in the book, deliberate rest, and which, you know, re- which in a lot of ways resembled the life that I kind of stumbled on, on this sabbatical. The other thing that made me realize that there actually was a story worth telling was, um, coming upon the literature on, um, the neuroscience, Of the resting brain and recent work in the psychology of mind wandering creativity which made which did two things I mean first off um, it established that actually there's an awful lot of really interesting stuff that goes on mentally when you know when we are apparently doing nothing at all you know we're just kind of spacing out Um, even when we're napping or sleeping our brains are really busy and that this work could explain why it was that whether you were you know X-ray crystallographer Rosalind Franklin or Charles Darwin or Stephen King, why it was that doing things like having a daily schedule where you work really hard for several hours and then you apparently do nothing for an equal amount of time helps you be more productive and more creative than uh, you would be if you were uh, to try and work at a high, fast pace constantly. So when all that came together, I realized, actually, there's a story here that's worth telling um, and that you can tell in a way that, you know, one uh, that I hope will be convincing to people who need to hear it.
0: Absolutely, and I, I think that your argument really is so convincing. And I'm, you talk a bit about this in your book, and I wonder if you could um, talk a little about a, a little bit about this for our podcast audience. Why why do you think that rest is such a problem in our modern day society? Because you've just kind of listed some really compelling reasons to value rest, and yet we continue to push against it. And I wonder if you could kind of articulate your understanding of that.
1: Right. Well. And I think that the, you know, the part of the reason that it is so difficult to back away from the idea that, you know, overwork is both an inevitable and inescapable part of modern life, and indeed that there's something kind of noble and desirable about it, is that there's so many different things that work together to make, you know, to create the appearance of inevitability. There's a great line in the the movie, The Usual Suspects, where, um... Uh, the Kevin Spacey figure says the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing us that he didn't exist. Mm. Well, you know, I think that the, or of, you know, or of the greatest trick that overwork has pulled is making it seem totally natural. And I think that, you know, part of the, you know, part of the reason for this is that we no longer, most of us no longer live in a world in which work has high has natural external limits right we don't come in from the fields when the sun goes down or go home when the factory bell you know whistle goes off um and so it's easy with knowledge work to just keep doing it right until we feel like we can't do it any or uh, any longer um another thing is i think that's particularly since you know the 1970s and 1980s we've had this model of or of of successful careers that emphasize sort of shorter periods of Herculean work. Right? To be successful now is does not involve climbing up the ladder, waiting your turn, you know, paying your dues, putting in decades with one company until you finally you know, get the corner office. But rather it's more like you know the movie Wall Street, where you make an incredible amount of money very quickly. And, you know, you were in a you're kind of in a race against the next economic downturn or the obsolescence of your own technical skills. That's now the model for how you are successful. And then there are you know, I think that um, the technologies that we use have not been our friends either. You know, I think one of the, the, the ironies with um, things like email and, you know, and smartphones is that they were supposed to allow us to. Break work up into discrete chunks, right, so that we could um, play with our schedules as we needed. you worked on you know you worked on projects for a few hours and then you did kid stuff and then you went back and you know finished up or of uh, what you'd been working on or previously, but instead what they've tended to do is kind of grind work into a fine powder that just gets sprinkled across our entire day um, and so it is you, when you are able. To carry you know, to carry your off around in your pocket effectively um, when you are easily reachable at an, you know sort at an instant's notice it becomes a lot harder to switch off the fact that you know the technical fact that you are all uh, that these things are always on means that you have to be always on too you know and then finally everyone else is doing it right? And this is, uh, you know, when we think that this is what success looks like, um, when we think that you've got to do this in order to impress your boss, to you know, not be a target for the next round of layoffs, um, in order to get the next promotion. That provide, yeah, that's a uh, that provides a really compelling internal justification for it. Um, So, you know, for all of those reasons, I think that we've come to see overwork as a norm. And, you know, I think that's, but, you know, unfortunately, however, it turns out that um, there's a uh, a lot of great research that shows that we would be much better off taking a different approach to our work.
0: Yeah. Well, I think it's so important to kind of pull out the reasons why we've gotten stuck in this trap of overwork so that we can directly confront it. And I think this idea of uh, technology kind of getting in our way, even though it's intended to help us, and then this uh, real experience of social pressure as well as career pressure to kind of keep going is so important to acknowledge so that we can – do something about it because if we sort of keep blind to it 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 keeps us in the same path one thing that i um had been thinking about in in sort of the context of always being on that i also think is kind of a modern dilemma that that it, when we look back on history it really was different a few decades ago and certainly a few centuries ago is the role that um, spirituality and religious life plays. Cause I do think that there used to be more of a, a framework that really required people to pause like for a Sabbath rest and to take meditative or prayer time to really focus away from work and focus on the spiritual life or on the family life. And I mm-hmm. think that that infrastructure that really was a part of society has really changed and kind of evaporated. And and all mm-hmm. that's left is this pressure to work and without that infrastructure to sort of set boundaries. And, and I think that what you do in your book, which is so nice, is offer some really lovely ways to create some of that infrastructure, some of those boundaries in a more proactive way because they don't just inherently exist anymore.
1: Mm-hmm. No, I think you're absolutely right that one of the benefits of... Um, spiritual life or or, or of religious observance that maybe we didn't appreciate until what if we'd lost it was the commandment to rest right the mm-hmm. legitimation of of taking this rest you know i think it's also the case that that allowed for a kind of interweaving of work and rest in a way that is that it, a kind of institutionalization of that relationship that we are now forced to reconstruct ourselves, individually. I was, you know, I'm really struck when I go to um, you know, places like London or Amsterdam and at how many churches there are in the city center, right? You know, in commercial areas. I was giving a talk at a, at a church called the Westerkerk, which is one of, which is a famous 17th century church. It's right on the canals. And I realized, you know, sort of people would have gone to services there, you know, as the spice laden and silk laden ships that were making them all rich would become, you know, would be coming up, you know, the canal right outside the door of the church. And there was a kind of unity of work and rest in the, in the daily lives of these, you know, eventually fabulously rich merchants that is really difficult, I think, to replicate today. Um, you know, I took a look at a map a little while ago, and it is several miles from Facebook or Google headquarters to the nearest house of worship. Um, yeah. And, you know, which is, you know, which was by no means something that was, you know, intended by anybody. Um, but just as a kind of artifact of the way that we lay out you know, corporate campuses and we do zoning, we have this kind of physical separation of... Sort of working life and spiritual life that 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 is very new and whose consequences I think we are you know uh, we we have to we have to learn how to live with so and I think that you know one of the things that the that that the book quietly tries to do is to provide for people who are perhaps not religious or not spiritual. Um, a kind of rationale for taking rest seriously, and for those you know who already are, kind of additional rationale for doing so.
0: Absolutely, yeah. So you do a lovely job in your book of of talking about the different forms that rest can take, and and interestingly, I think that you you make a really nice um, explanation for how we often think about rest as a very passive activity, but that rest can actually be. Active and sometimes even demanding, mm-hmm. as with intense exercise. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the different ways that we can think about rest.
1: Right. Well, I think you know we often we often think of uh, of rest as something that involves sitting on a couch with you know a remote in one hand and snacks in the other, and you know episode one of of you know several seasons of something that uh, yeah. that we've been meaning to watch. It does sound um, delightful. Um, <laughs> right. I mean, which absolutely has its place. However, it turns out that, um, you know, if you you think about um, what rest is, which is time spent restoring the physical and mental energy that you spend working, and you ask, okay, what kinds of things uh, 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 recharge you most effectively? And it turns out it's not just totally passive stuff, right? And this is one of the things that I was really surprised at in the book, but which I think explains but which turns out to explain an awful lot, um, is that the uh, the most restorative kinds of rest often are physically engaging, they're mentally challenging, and they work because, first of all, you know, for reasons that exercise physiologists can tell you, exercise turns out both to be, you know, physically draining, but also sort of energizing as well. Um, it's also the case that, you know, we often don't recognize it enough but cognitive work knowledge work is actually physically really demanding right your brain needs a lot of oxygen it needs a lot of energy in order to in order to work well and the better you are at or the better your body is at providing that the better off basically the better your brain is going to is going to operate but the other thing is that um Forms of recreation, forms of rest that are in, uh, that are mentally intensive or physically intensive are often ones that provide a greater sense of what psychologists call detachment, which is the kind of psychological sense of being away from work, right? Not being able to think about it because your mind is occupied by something else. And that is a really important component to getting good rest. If you are... You know, if you're sort of if you're doing something passive, and your mind keeps kind of going back to problems you've got at work or something that's you know the something that's been that's been bothering you, you're gonna get you're gonna rest less effectively than if you're doing something that is really um, that you're really mentally and psychologically immersed in. And so, for all of those reasons, active rest turns out to have sort of offer a bigger bang for your buck um, than just sitting on the couch. So,
0: yeah, I love that. I mean, there's something so paradoxical about so many elements of your argument, but this idea of Engaging in more active rest so that you are more fully detached from work, I think, flies in the face of what we what we often think about, which is this again, kind of going back to your original argument that we assume that more availability to work allows us to be more effective. But, in mm-hmm. co- it's it's sort of. F- the evidence really suggests the exact opposite, which is that by taking a full step away and really immersing ourselves in an activity that is uh, sort of takes us away from work physically and mentally and emotionally, that that is really where we can recharge our work batteries and come back more prepared to and more able to be effective, creative, productive, efficient, and all of those kinds of things that that really serve us well Mm -hmm. in the workspace.
1: Exactly right. And it you know, and I think the the evidence is also pretty compelling that the sort of more intensive your work, the more you know, the more you the more you like your work, um, the actually the more important it is to have a break from it, because high performers, ambitious people are more prone to breakdowns and burnouts because they kind of voluntarily overwork than people than people who are, and if, you know, come in and do their thing and then go home and it's no big deal. Um, so, you know, the fact that, the fact that you love your job and you want to be good at it, um, does not mean that you should do that. And only that. You'll actually do a better job over the long run Um, if you learn how to get some time away, some time to yourself.
0: Yep. Yeah. And I, I I think that, um, you, you, uh, discussed this concept of deep play that I think um, is a really interesting idea that you know finding something that is mentally immersive that challenges you that is very different from work but that in some ways can tie back into work is one mm-hmm. form of of active rest and I love some of the examples that you Give one of the things that I often think about as as somebody who who thinks a lot and certainly in my life engages in uh the tension between work and parenting life is I wonder what you think about the idea of parenting being kind of some form of deep play you You sort of make reference to it I think when you're talking about j r. Tolkien a little bit um, but mm-hmm. I wonder if if you've thought some about that
1: you know um uh, i have I have two teenagers and I would describe um sort of sort of parenting parenting is something that gets easier as you get older. Um I've never really thought you know and it is incredibly rewarding. Um and it is certainly the most important thing I think I'll ever do in my life. But you know it is I haven't really thought of it so much as deep play. Though perhaps the fact that I've uh, that you know I haven't sort of gone nuts and like sold the kids um, suggests that uh, you know per- sort of perhaps I should. Um, I mean, I think that the you know one of the features of deep play, and I think one of the things that uh, it's really its defining feature, is that deep play gives people a sense of of, uh, uh, provides rewards that are in some ways similar to the, or to the reward, rewards that they get when work goes well, but in a very different kind of medium and often at a different pace. And I think that's critical because, you know, when you are, let's say, a scientist, you know, sort of you are spending a lot of time in the lab, you're doing these meticulous experiments, they may last for years, and the result is sometimes, well, maybe, you know or if the hypothesis might be correct, and you know I think that uh, you know for for people who want to you know uncover the mysteries of the universe, those kinds of results can be really frustrating on the other hand you know, for but you can you can you can find those rewards much more quickly, doing things like you know mountain climbing, for example, which is turns out to be something that um, a surprising number, disproportionate number of scientists are really into. And when they talk about climbing, it turns out that they talk about it in the same way that they talk about science, right? You've got, it's incredibly mentally engaging. You're taking this big problem and you're breaking it down to a million little pieces. You've got to focus on each one of them. There's a technical dimension to it. So in a lot of ways, it offers the same rewards as science. But by the end of the day, either you've made it to the top or you haven't there's an incredible clarity to your success and it happens very quickly and when you look at people who are CEOs or successful actors or scientists or writers and you look at their and you know and you look at their pastimes it's often the case that the re- that the really ambitious ones have these hobbies that look Dangerous, time-consuming, expensive, and and you know, and kind of paradoxical because you know you would think, okay, you know, people who know that they're in a race to win a Nobel Prize or a Pulitzer, um, shouldn't be spending this time doing you know, sort of taking a month off and going hiking in the Andes. So, but I think that deep play helps explain why it is that these investments are worthwhile and why it is that. Uh, or of that uh, that they are uh, that they are worth undertaking now you know I think that the other thing about par- you know about parenting that makes uh, that makes it challenging for it to be a kind of deep play is that for so many of us there are high standards around you know or of around it right that uh, that you know it's not just um Keep the kid from becoming a child soldier or dying of an easily communicable disease, you know, or you know, turning into a psychopath, right? Or if it's, or if we don't just have to, we, you know, meet these these very minimal standards, but rather, you know, our kids have to be great, um, you know, and we have to take upon ourselves responsibility for crafting. These wonderful lives and wonderful experiences for them, and I think that sets up a set of expectations and a set of challenges that makes parenting a lot more like work than it might otherwise be. And I think this is especially especially true for women, right? And I I think that sort of we are we live in a world in which, um, you know, the uh, the challenges of being both professionally successful and being good parents are big for everyone but they're gigantic for women for you know a bunch of reasons this you know the sort of the most fundamental of which is um, you're often expected to start both of these things, right start families and start your careers roughly at the same time and then to raise kids as if you don't have a job and to work as if you don't have children. What could possibly go wrong with that system right um, and I think also that uh, that there is uh, the, you know, the other thing is that there there's good evidence that um men are simply better or better socialized at figuring out ways of gaming the system there's this uh, so that they don't uh, to uh, to take off some of this pressure there's this wonderful study of men and women's uh, or a performance at a consulting company, where they look and uh, and how they balanced work life uh, or of work life issues. And it turned out that what was going on was that junior partners who were women were taking advantage of formal programs. Right, they were going on halftime. They were doing the various things that the company had offered, and often they were suffering professionally as a result. The men, on the other hand, who were young fathers were doing stuff like trading with each other on projects, so that you know they didn't have to fly to Munich every two weeks to do status reports. Um, so that they could continue to look busy even while they were even while they were sort of uh, managed sort of managing their workload. The other thing was that if they were you know if a man was out of the office, generally the partners assumed he was out pitching clients. Whereas if the if you know if a woman was out the assumption was right. She's picking up the kids, um, and so the combination of this greater space and greater willingness to uh, sort of to kind of uh, to uh, to to exploit the gaps um, made it easier for men to look like they were hard charging and uh, sort of and successful without looking like they were all uh, they were having to make any sacrifices, and you know. Th- that, uh, I think that, uh, that study did a really nice job of revealing something that I think is true in many offices. So, um, which I think goes, which I think further contributes to the, um, to, to the separation of parent of parenting from deep play.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So for you, you really you know, kind of don't see parenting as a form of deep play, but there are lots of other ways that you do envision deep play being available to people. And you just more generally talk about rest as a skill that is useful to develop and and strategies Uh to developing. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about sort of in what way do you think of rest as a skill? That's sort of, uh, you know, a, a novel concept.
1: Right. No, you know, I think that um, it is, uh, it certainly is novel, but when you get into it, I think rest turns out to be kind of like running or breathing, right? Sort of breathing is something that absolutely everybody knows how to do. But if you are, let's say, a professional athlete, a swimmer, Uh, an opera singer, you know how to use your breath in order to improve your performance. If you are, you know, a Buddhist monk, you know a lot about how breathing affects your level of calm or excitement, helps you be centered. And so breathing is at once something that is incredibly natural, and, but also is something that we can learn to use in order to either be better at work, to be faster, to be better versions of ourselves. And likewise, I think that it's useful to think of rest as a skill in the sense that we can learn to do it better. Um, We can learn to um, incorporate it into our lives in order to uh, uh, both get more pleasure from it, um, to be more restored by it, and also to tap into its capacity to help us be more creative, um, and it's a and it's a challenge that I think we can uh, that uh, or we can uh, of renew throughout our lives, right? The of the place of rest. Changes depending upon what other stuff we've got going on, how busy we are, um, sort of whether whether we have more or less control over our daily schedules, and so I think that the that uh, that in all of those ways, um, thinking of rest as something that is uh, that is a skilled activity rather than you know, rather than something that's unskilled helps us make better use of it. It helps us take it more seriously, um, and kind of underlines its importance in our everyday lives.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So in, in in the book, you review a lot of the brain science research that clearly indicates that we can give our brains an advantage in creative and productive thinking when we rest. And, um, I would love it if you would just spend a few minutes talking about what some of the neuroscience findings are because I think they're just fascinating and kind of surprising, actually.
1: Yes. So, you know, the one of the one of the big bodies of research that I draw on is on uh, what neuroscientists call the default mode network. So it turns out, you know, when you kind of <laughs> zone out and, tr- and don't think about anything in particular, you know, just kind of let your attention, attention go wherever. Um, you feel like your brain is kind of shutting down, but it actually isn't. And what, uh, what you find when you put people in FMRI machines and watch brain activity is that their brains don't slow down um, or go quiet, but rather a second network, what they call the default mode network, of kind of connections between uh or of different brain regions activates so and it turns out that we are basically about as active our brains are roughly as active when we are apparently resting as it is when or of we're like trying to do math problems um and so that discovery from you know, about 20 years ago, is one that is, that has led people to try and figure out, okay, so, you know, are there differences in the way that the default mode network is put together in different kinds of people? Are there things that, you know, are there signatures that correlate with higher degrees of creativity or lower degrees? And it turns out, actually there are, that there are, you know, sort of the resting brains of highly creative people are different from those of people who are less creative in somewhat the same way that, you know, let's say, um, you know, rugby players or you know, ballerinas are different from couch potatoes. Um, there are parts of the, so you get higher levels of activation in areas that are associated with visual thinking, with, or of, uh, with innovation um, or with divergent thinking. And lower levels of connection to those parts of the brain that essentially kind of edit our thoughts um that uh, you know that uh, that um say, "Oh that idea is you know, that idea is no good mm-hmm. and so the res- and so the result is that it looks like there is that uh, that among highly creative people default mode networks work a little differently now it also seems like that is something that we can kind of that's you know that's not something that you're born with it's something that you can develop
0: right so that's sort and, of the skill development part of it
1: precisely and in a way you know we think of you know we think of like creative thinking or you know those aha moments that we all have, whether they are very small versions of you know who is the actor who is in that thing who is in that movie and the answer is you know Hugh Jackman right um but you know, the answer doesn't come to you immediately. You're trying to remember. And then a few minutes later when you're doing something else, wait a minute, it's Hugh Jackman. Um, that's the default mode network continuing to work on the problem even while you've gone, you have turned your your conscious attention to something else. And while that looks mysterious, it actually turns out that that is, I think it's sort of built that uh, the capacity to use the default mode network that way is a bit like learning language, right? Um, Language is this incredibly complicated thing that, that we all acquire when we're relatively young and we don't do it because we set out to do it. We learn language because we hear our parents talking and we hear other people talking and we want things and we begin to experiment and then at a certain point you know, sort of, our brains develop this amazing capacity to, um, you know, pick up hundreds of words a year, and we learn grammar. Or if you're Noam Chomsky, we're born with grammar. But anyway, and the, uh, you know, language is this phenomenally complicated thing that cha- that you know literally changes the way that your brain works, but which we all, can, uh, which we can all acquire and. It's a set of abilities that we can all refine. Likewise, I think it turns out that um, our capacity to think innovatively, or rather to use the default mode network, to our ability to tempt it to work on problems even while we are working on other things, that likewise looks almost magical or mystical, but it actually turns out to be something that... We can learn how to do. We can learn how to do a little better. Um, there are, and there actually are lots of stories of people who develop all kinds of techniques for um, helping this along. You know, Salvador Dali famously had this thing about um, sort of, uh, where he would take naps after lunch. Um, these were very. You know, these were you know, long Spanish lunches with a lot of wine, so, you know, a nap afterwards was, you know, was often uh, a necessity. But he would hold in his hand a key, and a heavy key, and as he started to drift off to sleep, he would have these, you know, sort of surreal images, right? This being Salvador Dali. Um, he would start to fall asleep. The key would slip from his hand, fall on the floor, and wake him up. And then he would sketch out those images, and then he would do it again and you know again for you know an hour or so and he talked about this as a technique for essentially discovering the painting that his subconscious mind had already completed in the you know in the days days previous to him taking up the brush and starting work on it and it, but it was a technique that um, he talked uh, that he talked about as one that um, really, you know, anybody could learn. Linus Pauling, you know, the sort of the only person so far to win two Nobel prizes by himself, um, likewise had this method, slightly less mysterious and apparently involving less wine, where <laughs> he would, um, you know, he would spend time before bed thinking about a particular. Technical problem that was bothering him that he was working on, and he said, you know, you would, he would do this for a few nights, and then eventually the answer would come to him. That what he and he very and he was he was really conscious about kind of priming his um, his creative unconscious mind, to, or to take up these problems while he was sleeping, to take them up in odd moments, and he trusted that you know, uh, that uh, that he would be able or his subconscious mind would be able to solve these problems on his behalf so i think this is you know, it's a uh, i think that you know, one of the things that um uh, that the book tells us is that this is an ability that we ought to take seriously and that we can actually, you know, treat as something that we can learn to do and learn to do better, just like, you know, Dali and and Linus Pauling.
0: I love that. I'm just curious, as a working parent, I personally find it hard, practically speaking, to build and rest. You know, I have three small children. Uh They wake me early. You know, you talk a bit about morning routines. It's practically a little challenging to wake up before my one-year-old. I have several demanding Uh, uh, professional uh. roles and just, you know, a sense that I'm always falling behind, which is kind of that social pressure. So I'm curious, Mm -hmm. um, I know you do a lot of consulting with, you know, prominent executives in Silicon Valley. What are ways that you advise people who simply feel too busy and have a lot of demands to find ways to incorporate rest into their days?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I think that um, sort of uh, the – the challenge of remaining productive or indeed remaining human um, when you have small children is like the hard problem in human existence. Um, And thank you for that
0: validation. (laughs) I mean, honestly,
1: you know, I love children, you know, children are wonderful children. You know, you can learn incredible amounts about yourself from, you know, sort of as a parent, it is astonishing to watch kids learn how to do even the simplest things. At the same time, however, children are also vampires. Um, children will, or if, uh, yep, children will kill you in all kinds of ways by, you know, sucking up as much time and energy as you know, as as they can get. Um, their capacity for that apparently is absolutely limitless and there is simply no satisfying the, you know, delightful little creatures. So now, so, you know, the reality is that, um, as great as they are, they are, you know, uh, they're an awful lot of work. And I think that we, you know, we often, we often underestimate that, um, And we should, and we ought to, I think we should recognize when we are challenged to do all these things at the same time that there's a really good reason for it, right? It's not that we don't have the energy or that we're not smart enough or that we haven't figured out like the right, you know, sort of work life balance tip. It's because this is an incredibly difficult thing to do. So, Having said that, I think that the, you know, the key for people who don't have very much control over their time, generally, um, and this applies whether you're a parent, whether you're, you know, in law enforcement or you're an ER, you know, an ER nurse, is you're not going to be able to like take two hours in the middle of the day the way that. You know Stephen King, Stephen King or Scott Adams did. Um, so what you have to do is push the deliberate rest to nights and weekends and vacations. Number one. Number two, be really, or be really protective of that time. Um, the studies that indicate I, there, there are lots of studies that indicate that people who are good at practicing detachment um, are both better when they come back to work on Monday and are less likely to suffer from things like burnout they have higher promotion rates there are all kinds of good things both in the short term and in the long term that come from take you know from simply taking your weekends really seriously um and finally uh take all the vacation time that you are allowed um the fact that people you know, americans leave something like 50 billion dollars worth of vacation time on the table every year and This is the stupidest thing, stupidest thing in the world. Um, And, you know, vacations, vacations are not like something that you're, you know, time that you're stealing away from your employers. You know, there are times when you get back the energy that you need in order to do a good job. Now, you know, my memory is that a vacation with a two year old, um, you know, much less multiple kids is a lot less rea- a lot less relaxing than the vacation when, base when either they're older and they're ignoring you because they're you know like snapchatting with their friends about how stupid it is that they're you know that they're having to go to you know the Grand Canyon, um, or when it's just you know you and your you and your partner. However, you know I think that uh, you know you do the in those in those circumstances you do the things that um, you know decent spouses or partners do which is you know, you work out a schedule where you dump the kids on the other person and you know for a while and you get to go off and just be yourself um you know an awful lot it's amazing how much of parenting basically is just playing zone defense and <laughs> dividing labor and um i think that uh, that the benefits of doing that when you are um you know, when you're, uh, when you're on vacation um, should not be overestimated. So
0: yeah. yeah. Well, I love what you're saying because I think that, you know, the, the bottom line is to take the rest seriously and to make it a priority and in a busy life to find ways to carve it out, even in small ways, even in imperfect ways. And, and sort of when it comes to parenting to kind of know that you're playing the long game, but that you need to be able to, to sustain yourself for the long game. And, and that rest is a part of that ability to sustain.
1: Absolutely. No, I think that the you know, we uh, we often think of rest as something that we'll get when we're done with everything else. The problem is we're never done, right? Um, there is always more to do or more that we think we ought to be doing. And I think unless you think of rest as something that uh, sort of that is... Uh, that is of genuine importance, rather than something that's like a nice to have or sort of an afterthought. Um, I think the more that you can recognize the role that good rest plays in helping balance our lives, in helping us uh, actually be more creative, more productive, better parents, um, sort of the more likely you are to, you know, defend it against, or if, you know, a world that will find. Other uses, for that, other uses for that time that may be better for them, but not better uh, for you.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I can't recommend this book highly enough. You go into a lot of these ideas and tips uh, in, in more detail, but I'm curious. So besides sharing the gospel of rest, what, what are you working on these days? What, what can we expect to see next from you?
1: So um, in addition to the paperback version of the book coming out in June, um, the, the next thing I've got is... I've uh, been working on a project looking at companies that have been shortening their work days. So, going from, uh, you know, going to four day weeks or six hour days, sometimes even five hour days, and asking how it is that they manage to pull this off when they're often working in things like advertising or financial services or software, right? Companies, you know, industries that are notorious for really long hours and or of uh, kind of uh, overwork as a as a default state, and what we can learn from them. And so, partly it's looking at just the tactics that people use in order to 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 shorten the shorten the workday or the work week, and then looking at both the um, intended benefits and also the more surprising, subtler, unintended ones, and asking. And then finally, you know, thinking about whether this can be a model for um you know for all of us in the future. you know, nearly a hundred years ago, John Maynard Keynes and Bertrand Russell and very smart people you know, were arguing that by now we would be working like you know fifteen hour weeks or you know four hours a day, you know, and clearly that future has gone off the rails <laughs> and you know so i'm and uh, so what i'm interested in is the question of you know whether whether it might be possible to get that back you know and particularly in a future where the future of work seems increasingly uncertain thanks to you know, automation and robotics and artificial intelligence and order and globalization um whether actually it's time it's time to take um something like the four-hour workday more seriously so and figure out how we can get there so that's the that's the next big project
0: fantastic i can't i can't wait to hear more about it so thank you so much for your time dr alex peng and if uh you all are interested in finding out more about Alex. You can find him online at deliberate.rest. You can also follow him on Twitter at rest underscore book or at askping uh, on Twitter. Are there other ways that folks can contact you or, or find out more about your work?
1: Those are the big ones. You know, okay. there's also Instagram. Um, uh, basically, um, if there is a if there's a social media channel and man, I almost always managed to grab Ask Pang. So um, but, you know, the blog and Twitter are the best uh, are the are the are the best places to to find out more about the work.
0: Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time. This has been wonderful. And I, I hope that people pick up that book because it is a great read.
1: Well, thank you. It's a, it's been it's been a pleasure.
3: Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes. You can also find us at www.offtheclockpsych.com. That's offtheclockpsych.com. Music by John Goo and Susie Stevens.